What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast. Milestone. Half of American adults have received at least one COVID vaccine dose. So are we there yet? Dr. Scott Gottlieb on the public health outlook. We're going to start to see the pandemic roll over in the United States in terms of cases coming down quite dramatically as we get into May. Show me the money for what a proposed infrastructure bill includes. Arthur Brooks of The Atlantic. There's just not an easy way out of this. We have to find some other way a compromise, B, more creative ways to actually pay for the spending that we do need that we would get through a compromise. And a deadly Tesla crash with nobody at the wheel. That's the problem that people have, some people have, when it comes to driver assist technology. They do not believe that it should be tested out with the public. Those stories plus China progressing on Bitcoin and the 2021 stock froth. On. There are quite a few companies, 50, 60, 70 billion, that, that I barely know what they do. I know GameStop, there's one near my house. I can see it and go touch the brick, brick and mortar. I don't know whether that's good. It's Monday, April 19th. Squawk Pod begins right now. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. We've got a milestone uh, taking place. This is great news in the fight against COVID. Half of all adults in America now have received at least one dose of a COVID vaccine. 32% of adults are fully vaccinated. And President Biden has asked states to open vaccine eligibility to all American adults as of today. Now, separately, the CDC plans to meet on Friday to talk about safety risks of the now-paused J&J vaccine. But the idea at least appears to be signaling uh, that the J&J vaccine may get back on the market with certain restrictions, and we'll see. Joe? Yeah, big piece in the journal about, you know, they didn't know exactly what to do. They, They were worried that, you know, the way that doctors would react to people that had it might, you know, might be confusing. So they just said, let's just pause it, and we'll see whether that Uh, that ends today. Yep, it's back in the headlines. GameStop. The brick-and-mortar retailer pivoting to e-commerce and beloved by the Reddit retail investor announced that CEO George Sherman will be stepping down. The change is expected by July. This is the biggest staffing shakeup at GameStop since Ryan Cohen, co-founder and former CEO of online pet food company Chewy, joined the company's board in January. No specific reason was given, although the company noted in an SEC filing that it's been evaluating executive leadership to ensure that the right skills, they say, are in place for a changing environment. And uh, the, the GameStop saga does not end. Uh, I think a lot of people thought that, uh, that, that Ryan might uh, take, take the role. It sounds like he's not going to, but clearly uh, they're on a path to changing the dynamic of, of what that company looks like. Again, I'm not sure anybody really knows, though, what that company will look like. $10 billion market cap now. When you look at something like Coinbase, it's, you know, make sure, you know, was Coinbase worth 100 or, or close to it? And then maybe GameStop is, you know, I, I've, I don't try to figure anything out anymore on, in terms of, of valuation because uh, there are quite a few companies, 50, 60, 70 billion that, that I barely know what they do. So, 
I mean, I, at least I know GameStop. There's one near my house. I can see it and go touch the brick, brick and mortar. I don't know whether that's good. But um, what, at it, it 400, so it was 40 billion. So now 10 billion, is that, what do we think of 10 billion? Is it 10 billion with Ryan uh, sort of calling the shots and a new CEO? Is that, not, maybe that's not crazy. Sorkin, is it? Becky? It depends where I, I, I think depends part of what the company looks look like two years from now. Trade. Yeah. 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 And you want to look at the recovery trade, too. I was listening this morning, and 80% of the S&P 500 is now trading at least 10% above where it was pre-COVID. So you're looking at a lot of rebound, not just bouncing back from the distress that we saw when things shut down, but most of these stocks are doing much better than they had been doing before COVID. And you just wonder if that's something that makes sense and something that can last, or if something that's kind of getting ahead of, 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 of where we maybe should be on some of these issues. That's just something to watch out for. I'm not saying that the market's gonna crash or anything else happening, but it does start to make you wonder how much room there is left to run when that's the situation. Nothing phases us anymore, does it? That's, that's yeah. when you start getting worried in terms of- Or everything phases us, but yeah. Well, we, we yeah, you know, we have we keep looking for we keep looking for something, I, I, and I don't know whether that's maybe that's building the wall of worry so it can keep going. But I, I mean, after if this when this is all said and done, people can't say that we weren't trying to figure out what was going to be. We've said that the straw that that finally. I mean, what's it going to be? You got these crazy, you know, Dogecoin and uh, you know uh, NFTs. What's his name? Steeple people, people. People. Yeah. People. 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 I mean, these are crazy things. These are crazy. These are, this is money that seems worthless because you're spending it on things that you have no idea whether there's any inherent value at all. I'm not talking about anything specific there, but uh, we've been talking about it. But as long as Jay Powell is happy, I guess, uh, and not concerned, maybe that's that's what's happening. Although you saw Jay Powell talking about, you know, the the articles over the weekend on what he's mentioned on seeing some of those... um, homeless tents that have uh, encampments that have popped up right on his way to the Federal Reserve. He drives by it every day. You may know this. There's a pretty substantial tent city that I drive home on the way home from work on Virginia Avenue. Uh, So we just need to keep reminding ourselves that even though some parts of the economy are just doing great, there's a very large group of people who are not. I really want to finish the job and get back to a uh, to, to a great economy. Oh, as if they're the ones that are going to fix it. That's the scary thing. Right. It, it, yeah. that's, that's the old saying. The Fed can, can't really, it can make things look better, but it can't really make anything actually better. You know, that's got to come organically from, from policy and, and economic growth and everything else. So hopefully he's not taking it. How's he sleep if, if the homeless people are Jay Powell's fault? You know, they could be. They, a lot of the income no, no, inequality he says, is He the says feds. it keeps them up at night. They don't own any assets. <laughs> assets are going up. Or maybe they, I mean, I don't, I can't speak for all, all of those people. But, but in general, the asset holders are, are doing very well with zero interest rates. And I'm not talking yeah. about uh, yeah. retirement. Retirees are not the ones we're talking about. So there's, there's a 33% plenty to percent increase to in the billionaires yeah. tagged by Forbes. You know, the, they're doing very well. It's tale of two cities like we keep talking about. Bitcoin, crazy. There's a shift from China, and this came after kind of nebulous reports that U.S. Treasury was looking at at Bitcoin after all that action last week with Coinbase, and that that 
I had saw it go as low as 51 and change, which will get your attention when it was at almost 64,900. So 64,900 to 51,300 uh, is like 20%, 20% plus just in the blink of an eye. Um, but in China, speaking at a panel that was hosted by CNBC, the central bank uh, of China's deputy governor called Bitcoin, in his words, an investment alternative. The main role we see for crypto, for crypto assets uh, going forward, uh, their main role is investment alternative. And as the investment alternative, I think many countries, including China, are still uh, looking into it and thinking about what kind of regulatory uh, requirements, uh, maybe minimal, but we, have, we need to have some kind of regulatory requirement to prevent um, speculative nature. He said China was thinking about regulatory requirements uh, that would prevent some of the risks to financial stability, but Industry Watch has called the comments, it's a loaded term, progressive, what that means. Uh, the shift comes nearly four years after China cracked down on cryptocurrency issuance and trading. Bitcoin's rising this morning after, as I said, a weekend plunge that, uh, depending on which exchange you look at, saw it dip nearly 21% uh, from last week's record high. And Coinbase this morning is, is weak. Uh, but Joe, that, the, the, the comments from China are, are almost in line with, if you, if you believe the sort of Peter Thiel version of the world, which is that, that <laughs> right. the Chinese are hoping ultimately to either destabilize or take over the U.S. dollar. And so anything that can do that, I mean, he's made the suggestion, others have made the suggestion that China was very supportive for a very long time, by the way, of the euro in hopes that there would be a, a second, uh, you know, a, a second right. world currency of sorts. So we'll, we'll see. Um, That's a cynical I'm, view. That's a, so it's like, yeah. It's 6 o'clock in the morning fine, on Monday. Americans, go for it. Yeah, just... As long as you don't like the dollar, we are urging you here have some. Yeah, that's that's an interesting uh, an interesting perspective on on why kind of so well, as a as an addendum to, to trying to destabilize the dollar. You think? Who knows? Who knows? Authorities in Texas are looking into a Tesla crash over the weekend that killed two men. It appears no one was behind the wheel of that car. Philip Bell joins us right now. He's got more on this developing story. Good morning, Becky. This was a fiery and deadly crash of a 2019 Tesla Model S. And according to police, they do not believe that anybody was in the driver's seat during the crash. Now, the investigators have not yet determined if the vehicle's autopilot technology was engaged before the crash. That's a big question mark that is out there right now. But this crash comes on a weekend when Tesla released its annual safety report. And once again, touting how safe autopilot is, as well as its other driver assist technologies. Elon Musk tweeting out Tesla with autopilot engaged, now approaching 10 times lower chance of accident than average vehicle. Well, not everybody thinks that autopilot should be tested publicly. Robert Sumalt, who is the head of the National Transportation Safety Board, he's been vocal in the last couple of months about saying the beta version of autopilot should not be tested as it currently is with some people on public roads. And again, we don't know if autopilot was engaged with this accident. In his opinion, autopilot, as well as other uh, autonomous drive technology, should not be tested on public roads. However, the NTSB does not regulate what automakers can and cannot do out on public roads. 
that falls to the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration. Now, CNBC has reached out to both NHTSA as well as Tesla for a comment regarding this crash. We have not heard anything. Keep in mind, NHTSA has launched 27 investigations of Tesla. Not all of those revolving around autonomous vehicle technology, but 27 investigations. And as of right now, Tesla is allowed to continue to test self-driving technology on public roads, as are other automakers. And this raises a big question, guys, that has been out there for some time in the auto industry. What should be allowed for the public to test in their vehicles before it is officially signed off on? Because nobody truly signs off on it. It is just ultimately incorporated into the technology of vehicles. Yeah, Phil, that's what I was going to ask you. We've been talking about this for a long time, about whether companies could or should be able to, to do this kind of testing on, on open roadways. NHTSA's issue with this is they, they have given approval for this or they just have have not no. given disapproval? What, no, 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 no. They, they, they have not given. Correct. They have not given disapproval. And that's the issue here. What NHTSA will often do is if a piece of technology separate from uh, autonomous vehicle technology, any type of technology in a vehicle, if it is defective, they will launch an investigation And if they determine that it's defective, they will then say to the automaker, look, you either fix this, take it out of the vehicle, fix it in some fashion, or we will sue you and force you to fix it. That's how NHTSA works. You don't go to NHTSA in advance of putting a piece of technology into a vehicle and saying, hey, will you sign off on this? That's not how it works. NHTSA is post after something has been developed and is incorporated into a vehicle. And that's the problem that people have, some people have, when it comes to driver assist technology. They do not believe that it should be tested out with the public. Now, a number of automakers do not test autonomous vehicle technology with the public. They have test drivers and they do it on public roads. But in this case with Tesla, the beta version has been in some vehicles, not all vehicles, but some vehicles, and they continually are updating the beta software for the autopilot. But let's be clear about this, Becky. Tesla has said time and again, you must stay engaged as the driver of the vehicle. Autopilot is not 100%. Take your hands off the wheel, take a nap, do whatever you want to do. The vehicle will steer itself. Tesla has never said that. Tesla has always said you must stay engaged. The problem is some people take the word autopilot and some of this technology and they say, well, great. I don't have to do anything when I'm driving. Hey, Phil, if NHTSA or or other agencies, either state or federal, decided to say, look, you need to change the name of this. Can't call it autopilot anymore. We're not going to accept that. Great question. You're going to have to create or you're going to have to create technology effectively uh, that makes that makes it clear that your hands are physically on the wheel. Otherwise, the car doesn't move. Right. Or or, or, or other types of either technological innovations or, as I said, maybe it's even around the the marketing or phrasing it. They could do that. No, they could. They could. What usually happens. What do you think has been the resistance thus far? Well, two things. One, to, to my knowledge, and, and, I'm, and to a certain extent here, I do not know this 100%, Andrew. To my knowledge, NHTSA has never sat down with Tesla and said, quit calling it autopilot. Now, if they did, Tesla might come back and say, oh, we think that's the proper marketing of it. We give plenty of warnings here. We make it clear you must stay engaged. The vehicle tells you to you know, grab the wheel every so often if you're not paying attention. So now you get into the question of how much pressure can the federal government put on one automaker? 
And we know that it's immense. Look what happened with the ignition switch recall for General Motors. Look what happened uh, with Toyota's unintended acceleration with the, uh, the brake pads and the accelerator pedals. So they have that power to put that pressure. To my knowledge, and this has been clear over the last four years with NHTSA, they have not put that type of pressure on Tesla to change the term autopilot or to stop testing beta versions of the software with some of these vehicles. Phil, we got to run, but do you have any idea what the resistance has been, given how aggressive they were in other instances? No, the resistance from NHTSA. I think NHTSA has taken a hands-off approach, Andrew. That's been very clear over the last four years. Very hands-off approach. Not just with Tesla, with all automakers. Interesting. Okay. Phil, great to see you. Uh, Great, great, great reporting. Thank you. You too. Next on Squawk Pod, Dr. Scott Gottlieb on the details of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine pause. The challenge right now is that FDA isn't in in full control of this decision. They should be, but in a very awkward twist, CDC has asserted control over reviewing this. The former FDA head says unpause could be soon. I would expect potentially by this Friday, perhaps with just some additional warnings about what doctors should be alert for. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. Here's Becky Quick. Vaccination milestone. Half of United States adults have received at least one jab. This news comes as the CDC is going to be meeting this week to talk about the pause J&J vaccine. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, the former FDA commissioner and a CNBC contributor, is here with us now. He also serves on the boards of both Pfizer and Illumina. His newest op-ed in The Wall Street Journal covers the roles of the FDA in regulation as the rollout of Johnson & Johnson's vaccine remains on pause. Uh, Doctor, it's great to see you this morning. Uh, Why don't we start with the good news, and that is that uh, half of American adults have received at least one jab of the vaccination. That's great news. What what does that mean about trying to address the pandemic here? Look, I think we're going to start to see um, the pandemic roll over in the United States in terms of cases coming down. We're still going to have outbreaks in some parts of the country. We're never going to virtually eliminate this virus. But uh, I think you're going to start to see cases come down quite dramatically as we get into May. You know, partially as a result of the seasonal backstop, the fact that we are getting into the warmer months, more activities being taken outside, but also a large factor is going to be the increasing vaccination rates. If you look at San Francisco, I think that provides a pretty good guide of where we're headed. San Francisco right now has 62 percent of their adults over the age of 16 vaccinated, 40 percent fully vaccinated. They're recording about 30 cases a day in, in the city of San Francisco and the greater metropolitan area wow. there, and they have about 20 people hospitalized. So the cases have come down dramatically in San Francisco. I think it's a function of warming weather there and also the high vaccination rates. That's incredible. And, and we hope that uh, continues to happen here throughout the rest of the United States. When you look at the pause of, of the J&J vaccine, that, that is a bit more concerning. You've got a nuanced look at this. You, you take a perspective because most Americans look at this and say, OK, the authorities, the government says that this is on pause and we shouldn't be doing this right now. You point out that it's the CDC, not the FDA, that's overseeing this. And you do have some concerns about that. What are they? 
Well, look, FDA took the action to pause use of the vaccine while they investigated these cases. And what they wanted to do was elicit more reporting. They wanted to make sure that they were seeing the full numerator. And I think they're going to have a picture this week on what the true number of cases is. And we haven't seen that many more cases emerge. I think that there's speculation and maybe as many as eight cases right now, but we're not sure. We'll probably get a better picture of that on Friday when they present it before the CDC. They also wanted to give advice to physicians not to treat these patients with heparin because one of the things that was getting these patients into trouble when they formed these very rare blood clots was that they were being treated with a blood thinner that basically exacerbated um, you know, the bad outcomes from these blood clots. But the challenge right now is that FDA isn't in, in full control of this decision. They should be. They're the drug regulator. They oversee drug safety. But it's very in a very awkward twist, CDC has asserted control over reviewing this for their advisory committee, the ACIP. That advisory committee usually makes recommendations on immunization schedules. So, for example, they oversee the childhood immunization schedule and make recommendations on what vaccines children should be using and what vaccines they should get before they go back to school. They're not necessarily an advisory committee that oversees drug safety issues. And so I think this would have been better handled inside FDA. And if FDA needed to seek outside advice from an advisory committee, they could have gone to their own advisory committee that oversees vaccine safety. But I think because of the way the COVID vaccines are being handled, where CDC is playing a prominent role in the distribution of those vaccines, the agency wanted some role for itself in adjudicating this question. I think that that's created a layer of complexity that has slowed down the process. Hey, Scott, I know this is something that generally happens two weeks after the, the people get the shot, after, and, and it's particularly in women under age 50. How concerned should women who got this shot let's say a month ago, maybe longer, be about all of this. And I think about here in New Jersey, a lot of teachers got that shot because, you know, they were only became eligible as J&J was rolling out. A lot of them are women under age 50. If you got this shot a month ago, can you relax a little bit? I think so. I don't think people who are outside, you know, a two or three windows should be concerned about this side effect. This does, if, if this is in fact causally related to the vaccine, it appears to be some kind of immune reaction to the vaccine vector, the viral vector that's delivering um, the genomic sequence from the coronavirus. And it seems to be extremely rare as well, um, if in fact it is causally related to the virus. And so if it's an immune reaction, it's likely to manifest itself shortly after delivery of the virus. We see this kind of immune-mediated thrombocytopenia platelet destruction. That's basically what's happening from other drugs. Um, there, it's a drug side effect. It's a known drug side effect. In this case, it seems to be being induced potentially by that viral vector, but it, if it is if it is causally related, it's extremely rare. And I think people who are outside that window, that sort of immediate window, I think they can be relaxed about the risks associated with this at this point. How quickly do you think the vaccine will be reapproved or, or said, go ahead, you can start using this again? I would expect potentially by this Friday that they're going to go into that advisory committee with some, um, you know, some understanding that they want to reach a decision and bring this vaccine back, perhaps with just some additional warnings about what doctors should be alert for and when they do, patients and doctors for that matter, and when they do um, identify these cases in very in rare, rare circumstances, they treat it appropriately. They don't try to treat it with heparin. They use appropriate precautions. There's a very particular way you'd approach a patient with this kind of immune-mediated thrombocytopenia. So I think that's going to be the most important thing to do. And just make sure they step up the reporting, that they have better pharmacovigilance in place to capture these events if, in fact, they continue to occur, which I think the FDA is doing. They're, they have very good active surveillance where they're looking at electronic medical records for signs and symptoms of these clots, things that might be more subtle, not as serious, but could be getting missed. Um, they have a pretty robust system in place right now, the FDA. You know, the J&J vaccine and the AstraZeneca vaccine are the two that were seen as incredibly important, especially for other countries um, 
in, in need, maybe not as developed countries where you don't have ways of keeping things refrigerated for as long, where it's more complicated. Is this going to create problems just in terms of appearances, in terms of saying, OK, you know, we're going to give you guys the vaccines that we've had some problems with? Does that come back and, and, and push back at any point? Or are some of these nations just so desperate to get things under control where you start seeing flare ups again that, that they will take this with open arms? Well, I don't think necessarily with the J&J &J vaccine, even if there is a causal link here established, I think you're going to have a very low rate of side effects uh, associated with this vaccine. I do think the vaccine is going to be um, back on the market in the U.S. and find a role here in the U.S. Um, you know, there, there is a challenge in other markets getting the mRNA vaccines into those markets because of the uh, in increased storage requirements, handling requirements, the cold chain that's required. It's required here as well for shipping with the J&J &J vaccine. But once the J&J &J vaccine gets into providers' hands, it can stay out of um, refrigeration and freezers for longer periods of time. And it's also a one shot. That was really the, the significant advantage. So we have to do more to also create the infrastructure to get the mRNA vaccines into those markets. But I believe the J&J &J vaccine is going to be back here in the U.S. Okay. Scott, thank you. Good to see you. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks a lot. Next on Swap Pod, Arthur Brooks, fellow podcaster, musician, and writer for The Atlantic. What's ahead in the battle for an infrastructure bill? If we want actual progress, we have to make compromise, and that just doesn't look like it's, you know, something they want to do. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. At the center of Capitol Hill heat, President Biden's $2.25 trillion infrastructure plan. This week, the president is scheduled to meet with a bipartisan group of former governors and mayors. This will be his second meeting with a group of legislators to discuss this massive proposal. Now, why is something as totally sexy sounding as infrastructure creating such a hubbub among politicos? Well, a lot of conservatives are using air quotes when they refer to this infrastructure plan, because while the proposal pushes for work on roads, bridges, water supply, and broadband, access, it's also allocating money for things not typically associated with traditional infrastructure. For example, President Biden is proposing $174 billion to boost the electric vehicle market and $400 billion to support in-home care services and workers. Washington's differing interpretations of infrastructure have created a bit of a standstill, but maybe something's got to give. Here's Joe. All right. We're going to talk about that. Uh the battle on Capitol Hill over the, the big infrastructure plan, $2 trillion, how to pay for it. But uh, we're going to talk about a lot of things with Arthur Brooks. Let's get right to him. AEI President Emeritus, also with Harvard University, a contributing writer with The Atlantic, host of the podcast, The Art of Happiness, with Arthur Brooks, and an author of Love Your Enemies, How Decent People Can Save America from the Culture of Contempt. Now, How's that going? Uh, it, that was published with the Onion. That was that published with the Onion. Was that uh, that's yeah. a parody? Uh, how's that working? Is is that uh, are we making some progress there, Arthur? 
Oh, hope springs eternal, Joe. Hope springs eternal. Yeah. This is an ancient teaching, of course, but it's a, this is the challenge of mankind, isn't it? Love your enemies. I know. <laughs> I know. It's not, uh, I don't, I, we were supposed to, I think the 100th day is coming up. How's that unity? Feeling, you feeling united? I'm not feeling too yeah, united. I'm not feeling yeah, a no. lot of unity. How about, the, okay, the infrastructure plan. You, you basically say everybody's for infrastructure. The Democrats won the election. But classifying every long-time progressive agenda item as infrastructure is probably not a great idea if you want everyone to take you seriously. Yeah, well, not only that, it's not honest. And you know, the, the basis of actually unifying our country is speaking to people honestly, as opposed to trying to get everything that you've always wanted and being devious about it. Now, I understand politics. You know, I've been dealing with Washington, D.C. forever. And you've been watching this thing, too. And Republicans do this, too. You get everything that you want. You shove it into one package. You call it something else and hope that nobody notices. But the truth of the matter is that right now it's more crucial than ever that we speak frankly with the American people, especially coming out of the coronavirus epidemic and trying to get you know, a new spirit of American unity started. And you know what we have is $400 billion in child care, and we call that infrastructure, and $174 billion in creating just incentives so people will drive electric cars, and we call that infrastructure. And look, just say, we want federally funded child care because that's a progressive thing. We won the election is what we're gonna do, but don't, don't pretend that it's bridges and roads. That's ridiculous. Do you think when it's all said and done, that the two sides get together with a, some type of compromise. Senator Cornyn from Texas said uh, Republicans would do $800 billion for bridges and roads and airports and uh, probably even, uh, even high-speed Internet. I guess you could throw that in there now. Maybe there's a few things you can, you can classify as modern-day infrastructure. Do you think we'll right. end that way or you think we'll end at 51? Uh, Vice President Harris makes it 51 and they reconcile that heck out of something that includes everything. I think that it's I think it's even odds that it's going to go one of these two directions. I know that the Republicans really do want infrastructure, but the Republicans are just not going to put up with something that's not infrastructure and calling it infrastructure. Uh, and so if, in, if Democrats insist on that, then they're going to have to you know, force something through with 51 votes. Not very much of it will get done over the next few years. The House and Senate will at some point flip, and so will the White House, and then we'll ping pong this thing back and forth again. If we want actual progress, we have to make compromise, and that just doesn't look like it's you know something they want to do. I mean, you played the French horn for the symphony in Barcelona, but you still yes, don't want to sock it to corporations. You're you're like an enigma. You're you're an artiste, <laughs> but you still don't want to just really stick it. Uh, to, to the corporation. You, you say that if we, re if we pay for it by going to 28%, I think I'm quoting you, uh, it's going to hurt, it's going to lead to less investment and slower growth and we'll lose, even lose jobs? Potentially, yeah. I mean, 25% of corporate taxes, according to the best estimates, the best nonpartisan estimates, 25% of corporate tax increases get passed right through to workers and lower wages. So that's a problem right there when we're trying to recover. We have, you know, the unemployment rate's too high for all of the reasons that we all know about, perfectly normal reasons coming out of this horrible epidemic. This is the wrong time to do something to create disincentives to create jobs, number one. Number two is this whole idea of disincentivizing in, you know, economic activity, growth and opportunity at the corporate level and giving more incentives to offshore stuff. I mean, it's the wrong time to do this, obviously. 
Um, and yet we once again, we lie to the American public and say, ah, there will be no real cost to this because, you know, we can look at some point in American history where there was a corporate tax increase and say it wasn't so terrible then. And so it won't be so terrible now. It's, it's just it's it's a risky thing to do. You think we go to 25? Is that what the end result looks like? It's going up one way or another. And, and what else would you would you deficit spend the rest or would, would you try to do a usage fee or, or raise taxes on on wealthy? I don't know. What, how would you do well, it? Personally, how yeah. would I? The first thing I would look at is starting to sell federally owned properties. And, you know, the, the federal government owns so many trillions of dollars in stuff that we could actually start talking about putting into private sector hands to be, make them both more productive and to release some assets. And you know, that's a conversation that has apparently been off the table forever. That's a good place for us to actually start looking. The deficit spending is a huge problem. I mean, the, the, the interest rates are at historically low rates. And we all know that about a one percentage point increase in, in, in interest rates is going to result in three to four hundred billion dollars in debt services for the for the federal government. And so there's just not an easy way out of this. We have to find some other way a compromise, B, more creative ways to actually pay for the spending that we do need that we would get through a compromise. Hey, Arthur. Um, yeah. You know, how are you? Num- how are you? It's great to see you. There's a number yeah. of studies that suggest that we leave something on the order of about $600 billion annually uh, on the table because we don't have uh, an innovative uh, and technologically able IRS that's actually able to, uh, to, to really collect properly uh, the amount of revenue that, that frankly, the government is due. Um, this isn't people not. This is not just people who who are uh, skir- skirting things legally. This is effectively people who are doing things that are are, are genuinely illegal. Um, right. I've asked many times uh, um, a number of Republican politicians who've come on and said, "Why don't we fund the IRS uh, with more money? Uh, for every dollar that you put in, you're going to get multiples back." And invariably, the answer is no. We don't want to do that. And I. I've, I don't understand it because I've always thought if we could actually collect the money that's due, potentially we wouldn't necessarily have to raise taxes or do other things to raise revenue when we should just be getting the money that we're already uh, that, that's already supposed to be coming 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 to uh, uh, coming to us. Yeah, totally. Look, you're you're completely right about this. This is not a question of tax avoidance. This is a question of tax evasion. And and that requires that we have an IRS that's equipped and and armed and has the expertise and funded adequately to go after people. Now, here's the problem. Here's the paranoid fantasy that everybody has when they think deeply about the IRS. When the IRS has a lot of money, they don't necessarily use it to do that. We, We don't have to think back very far when the IRS was actually apparently, according to what a lot of groups thought, was selectively um, you know, uh, um, figuring out how you know, 501c4 or 501c3 conservative organizations could, could be delayed and actually not get their tax status. And there's, there's, there's evidence that suggests that, that that can actually happen. So until there's actually more confidence on the part of the American public okay. toward the IRS, we're not going to be able to come together and, and decide whether they can get the money they actually need to do what they need to do. Arthur, great. We're out of time. Thank you. We've Thank you. Get, it's great to see you. Quickly. Love you. Love you. Love everyone. Love you too. Yep. Okay. <laughs> see you later. Back. See you. Mwah, mwah, mwah. 
That's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating, maybe five stars, four, or write a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find Squawk Pod. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.